Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Uh, ben, the... The Boston Red Sox gave up an inside the park grand I saw slam. That. I, saw that. I, saw that. <laughs> I saw that dude just like not run in the right direction. You he know? just didn't see the center fielder just didn't see a fly ball and, and right over his head. That's rough if you're a pitcher. That's rough on your ERA if the guy's just like running in the wrong direction. They gave up 27 runs. Yeah. <laughs> They're always like football scores. Yeah. You guys look like you're about to poke back into the pennant race. I actually follow baseball really closely. and Mets are good, right? Mets are good. Yeah. And then the wheels just popped off the bus with Red Sox. So yeah. far off the bus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Inside the park Grand Slam. It does not happen. Mets play the Yankees tonight. Oh, so, nice. Uh, yeah. Little Subway yeah, Series. Little Subway Series action. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, well, that will be great. We are going to skip all around the globe today, Ben. Yeah. We're touching we all sure kinds are. of bases here. We're going to cover the controversy about Speaker Pelosi's uh, scheduled, currently planned trip to Taiwan. Uh, and why the U.S. government might subsidize semiconductor construction. We'll talk about the latest from Ukraine, including the food and energy crisis, Congo and climate change, uh, Viktor Orban's latest horrendous comments, why the Pope went to Canada, Italy's leadership crisis, the uh, execution of activists in Myanmar, Trump and the Saudis, why Boris Johnson will not go away, and then two stories that I'm putting under a bucket of things that will make you think you're high. Oh, those are always my favorite stories. Some of my, yeah, some yeah, of my favorite things. Yeah. And then, Ben, you did... A fantastic interview today. Please tell us about it. Well, uh, I had John Sova on, who is my co-host on Another Russia, and we just talked a bit about, you know, what John was trying to do with the podcast, how her father's legacy looks in light of the war in Ukraine, which he was killed probably for uh, opposing uh, the annexation of Crimea, and and kind of her her hopes for the future of Russia, and 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 you know what what the the future of the opposition is like there, and uh, and I want you know everybody to take the chance now to. Smash that subscribe button. Smash it. Uh, the first episode dropped yesterday of Another Russia. I, I really love this podcast. I think you're going to find it to be a really compelling story with a huge personality, Jean, at the center of it, or her father as well, and and then some great other voices. Um, and so check it out. Subscribe, rate, review, help people find mm. it, all those things. Nice. Um, we love those good reviews. Um, and then um, it'll be on our feed uh, yeah, we'll on feed Monday. Drop. Yeah, so, we'll so you'll get it. But just because you get on Pods of the World, don't get lazy here. It's free. All you have to do just is take that extra step just to subscribe. subscribe. Good flag on the uh, the rate and review. I haven't begged for five stars from <laughs> yeah. listeners in well, a long the reason time. I, I've said this to you guys before. The only reason I do that is because- oh, it helps. It helps. It People find it, but also the like- stupid Apple list the, that no one understands. The trolls always come out. So whenever I do anything in the world, it's always like, 
zero stars, more socialist garbage, you know, or something like that. And I'm always like, come on, man, you didn't listen. Oh, Did man. you listen? I don't think you listened. That's just yeah. mean. Yeah, it's just Be mean. nice to Ben, trolls. Yeah, yeah uh, Apple's rigged. Help us rig it further. I don't understand those lists. I, listen, Apple, if you're listening, I love you. I, love all yes. your, I bought all your stuff. I, yeah. you know, yeah, I got the phone. Thousands of my dollars have in gone front of me. to you. Yeah. I just don't know how that algorithm works. I even buy those little things that you need to connect. The, the dongles. The, yeah, the headphones, the yeah. other headphones. Yeah. But the thing about the series, it's an amazing series it couldn't be better timed in terms of just like understanding russia better but also i mean you said this like jana is hilarious and so fun to listen to yeah. and like just a great host yeah and like you two together are great to get i mean the whole thing is perfect she pointed out today with something she reminded me of during the podcast that this is like a foreign language for her. can you imagine having to do a no. podcast in a foreign language no. so yeah she's incredible ben before we get to the news one very important uh housekeeping not even housekeeping this is more important than the show we're 100 days out from the midterms Less probably when you're listening to this. And I just want everyone to know the stakes could not be higher. And if you want to get involved, go to Vote Save America's Midterm Madness. Uh, you just go to votesaveamerica.com slash midterms. You can sign up. You can be a part of our, our July 31st weekend of action. You can get involved. You can donate. You can support candidates. You can pick a region. It's fantastic. So check it out. votesaveamerica.com slash midterms. Let's talk about Taiwan. Because that's, Let's I think, the, the biggest story in Washington right now. Everyone's, this is a, your classic, like, almost August controversy that everyone loves to, yeah. to talk about and freak out about. So Speaker Pelosi is supposed to go to Taiwan. It's creating outrage in China, and it's creating headaches for the White House. She is, I guess, reportedly planning to visit Taiwan the next few weeks. The trip was initially supposed to be in April. But she got COVID, so they delayed it. Pelosi would be the highest-ranking U.S. politician to visit Taiwan since 1997 when Newt Gingrich made the trip. Yeah. But he was a blast to hang out with on that <laughs> <laughs> um, Pelosi, she's a longstanding, harsh critic of the Chinese government, yes. rightly so. Um, and her rank, her high rank in the U.S. government, and her past comments have caused the Chinese government to flip out about the trip. Or maybe they're just, you know, performatively flipping out. Who knows? And they have declared they will respond forcefully if Pelosi's visit happens. As we've discussed many times on this show, the Chinese government thinks Taiwan is their territory. Most analysts believe that the China's military buildup over the last few years uh, is at least in part to prepare for a possible invasion of Taiwan. Uh, the U.S. government is required by law to sell Taiwan weapons to help it defend itself. So we are in the thick of this thing. Ben, this is a very bad <laughs> political setup. Um, obviously, no one wants the Chinese government to dictate where or when some U.S. elected official travels. That said, it's also true that Pelosi's visit isn't going to make Taiwan safer. Yeah. And there are some people who think it actually might do the opposite. It might cause China to do something stupid. The White House clearly thinks this trip is a bad idea. We know that because Joe Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden told us. <laughs> yeah. Joe Biden's like, this yeah. is a bad idea. Like, it's a bad idea. Yeah. Um, there was yeah. a report in the Financial Times on Monday. You got to admire his candor. Yeah, yeah. No, I do. See, it's we were like, laughing uh, before we started recording. Like, that's, <laughs> that's pretty blunt. I've not, I've not seen that. <laughs> I've yeah, not yeah, seen yeah, that either. Yeah. There was a report in the Financial Times on Monday about how Taiwanese officials are worried that the no matter what happens, the situation might make Washington more nervous about helping them out. You know Republicans will savage Biden, they'll savage Pelosi if she cancels. Yeah. What do you do here? <laughs> I, I was wondering if Pelosi could like engineer some way to delay the trip or or maybe to get disinvited. But like I don't know. I'm I'm guessing she doesn't go because I don't see the upside, but I see a lot of downside. But I don't know. Where where's your head on this? 
Yeah, it's a crazy uh, circumstance. And look, this is of a piece with what the Chinese Communist Party does, which is that they try to make it so difficult for you to do certain things that you just don't do them. And so that's kind of like a deterrent strategy in a way. Yeah, whether you're the Speaker um, of the House or the GM of the Rockets, yeah, yeah, they yeah. just destroy Exactly. You. It's the same. Yeah. No, it's like the same principle Darryl, Darryl that they, they apply to the, the GM of the Rockets. Hong Kong. And um, I think on this one, you kind of indicated something that I think is the right answer, which is, Okay, I don't think that it's a good look for China to be able to tell American politicians, particularly, you know, members of Congress, they can make their own decisions, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, actually, there's one time I had to call Nancy Pelosi and suggest something to her about a trip she was taking. How'd that go? It was one of the most, like, I got yelled at in a way, like, mm. let's just say by the end, I was a, I was not only agreeing with her position, <laughs> I, was, I was chastising myself. You're offering for, to go on the trip, yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but I think that the, the, the thing to do here is put the question to the Taiwanese. Sure. Because the negative consequences of her going would ultimately be borne by the Taiwanese. Like, I, I don't necessarily think China's going to invade Taiwan over this trip. But there were, you know, there were some indications that maybe there'd be some very aggressive military actions mm-hmm. in response, things that could kind of reprisals on Taiwan, you know, if, if they on balance are willing to accept that risk and, and, and would like her to be there, then I think, you know, that you've given them the opportunity to say, hey, look, we think this is going to be hairy. Like, do you still want the speaker to come? Um, I, I think she can she can have that conversation because I do think at this point it, it's uh, it's pretty bad look to to have the Chinese government basically canceling her visit. It, you know, like I. Whatever you think about whether or not the timing is right, it's just it's so far out there that uh, like pulling it back feels like a tough place to be. And 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 for what reason? I, I, why are the Chinese doing this? I think they're doing it for a couple reasons. They have a party conference on the horizon where Xi Jinping is likely to try to install himself as the leader mm-hmm. for life. He doesn't want any embarrassments in the run up to that. Um, we the U.S. potentially has an arms sale to Taiwan that could be kind of designed to to fend off more effectively a Chinese invasion, so a little bit more provocative mm-hmm. of an arms sale than the kind of planes and stuff we sold in the past. Um, and so tensions are up for a reason. There's, a, I guess, a reason why, like you were talking to me before, like this didn't seem like that big a deal in April. It does now. But again, I think, you know, put the question to the Taiwanese, do it privately and, and, and go with that guidance. Yeah. And certainly the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has just completely changed the context. I mean, I don't know yeah. about you, but that's right. People who are like, you know, pay a lot of attention to geopolitics ask me all the time, when do you think China is going to invade Taiwan? It's no longer if, it's a when question. And yeah, I mean, you can feel that, that tension and that pressure here. There, yeah, it's been really interesting because like this is a question worth asking. <laughs> Some of these kind of hypotheticals um, feel extraneous, but like this is a pretty big question. Like, because if the US and China are going to war, it's going to be over Taiwan. And thus far, you've heard two very different analyses out of the war in Ukraine. One is, wow, the war in Ukraine was much harder for Russia than they thought it would be. Um, it wasn't a cakewalk. There were real sanctions. They're stuck in, in this very difficult conflict, taking huge losses. And therefore, that might make the Chinese think twice. There's another theory that part of the reason why this has been so hard for Russia and Ukraine is that there's been like seven years where the Ukrainians have been able to train right. and arm themselves and prepare for the invasion that kind of began in 2014, but didn't really go full tilt until this year. And that the Chinese might want to get ahead of that. 
And instead of sitting back and letting Taiwan arm itself for another decade and develop all these plans to fend mm-hmm. off their invasion, that they might just want to go in the next couple of years. We don't know. Yeah, you we know, don't know. We don't know. But yeah. uh, but it is a tinderbox, and it's going to be it's going to be a, a, something to watch. And and ultimately, I think people like you know, the level of Pelosi are probably going to want to visit there, uh, given how central it is to so many U.S. interests. So speaking to those interests. The Senate voted to advance a bill today that is designed to boost competition with yes. China and in particular to incentivize the construction of facilities that make semiconductors in the U.S. According to the Congressional Research Service, nearly 80 percent of semiconductor manufacturing capacity is in Asia, including 22 percent in Taiwan. And if the U.S. loses access to those suppliers, uh, there would be massive, massive, massive economic and national security ramifications. So specifically, if China invaded Taiwan, took over these facilities or destroyed them, we would be screwed. Big time screwed. So the bill is over $50 billion in subsidies for companies to build semiconductor manufacturing facilities in the U.S. And there's an investment tax credit for chip plants estimated to be worth over $20 billion, the tax credit is. So Ben, I totally understand the concern here. I agree with the concern. It's not the, the pandemic showed how fragile our supply chains are yeah. for like cloth, you know, masks, <laughs> yeah, 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 let alone, yeah. right? Super complicated uh, semiconductors. I just don't know how much we need to incentivize a gigantic corporation like a Qualcomm is a $170 billion market cap. Bernie Sanders is calling the bill corporate welfare. Like, I don't know. What do you think? Like, how necessary do you think this bill is? Well, it's clear that it was necessary for us to kind of get ahead of this problem looming on the horizon or potential challenge. Because like you said, I mean, if like we have an enormous reliance on semiconductors from Taiwan, if, if those were to go off the market, but this impacts every everybody's lives in a way. I mean, you, you know, like this is obviously got an economic impact, but like, you know, every the computer in your car and your phone, all these things, like you could see real disruptions to kind of technologies people rely on uh, on a regular basis. And it's just kind of an indication China's trying to build this indigenous tech sector of its own, mm-hmm. right? So this is the Cold War part. China is pouring a lot of money into onshoring, like bringing into China the supply chains that they rely on for key technologies. And this would be the U.S. replicating that, trying to onshore our own development of core technologies like semiconductors. So this is a huge bill that kind of is an opening cornerstone of the the Cold War competition as supply chains between the U.S. and China kind of bifurcate, split in two, and and we don't want to be overly reliant on things that come from either China or, um, in this case, Taiwan or um, uh, other countries that are potentially under Chinese influence. Japan, Korea. Yeah, you know, now... Part of the problem I have, though, is this bills have like a long under the radar road <laughs> to passage. Yeah. Um, at the beginning, there was a lot more stuff that made sense in terms of like investments and in kind of basic research and innovation. Like the United States has not been investing in kind of research and innovation at the federal level at the at at the rate it used to for a long time. That those numbers have been declining, and so there was originally like a broader approach taken to spurring innovation including in the semiconductor industry but 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 you know ac- across different sectors kind of shrunk down to this very semiconductor focused approach um, and yeah I think inevitably you know to split the difference here and I, I think in this case that that's merited there's some interest in catalyzing this industry and making sure these supply chains are secure I'm sure that in the <laughs> in the writing of the bill and in what happens in Washington like the 
it gets cushier and cushier and cushier for the big corporations. Oh, you think a couple lobbyists get uh, in there? Yeah, 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 yeah the lobbyists yeah, get yeah, in there and like, well, how do you make this yeah. as easy as possible for this already very profitable yeah. Com- yeah. company to do this thing that's in the national interest? So it feels to me like good intention, uh, the bigger framework was probably more useful because it addressed other things, including kind of basic research and development. And yeah, probably a little co- corporate welfare got laundered in there in the process. Yeah, as since happened. Um, part of the background for why people are suddenly worried about semiconductor shortages is the war in Ukraine is raging on and now yeah. the Russians have access to none of these technologies because of sanctions. Um, so let's talk about Ukraine for a minute. So there was a, a, a glimmer of hope uh, in Russia and Ukraine last week when the Russians and Ukrainians signed a deal to free up more than 20 metric tons of Ukrainian grain for export. This deal was brokered by the United Nations in Turkey. It was signed in Istanbul. Obviously, it won't end the war, not suggesting it would, but it could help ease a food crisis that has had devastating consequences already, especially in Africa. But less than a day later, Russia bombarded um, the, uh, the port in Odessa where Ukraine ships its grain. So now this whole thing is very much up in the air. The broader issue at stake here is that Ukraine has all this grain stored. They can't move it on railways and on the roads because there's just too much of it. They need to get it on boats. But Russians have blockaded the Black Sea ports and the Ukrainian militaries mined their own harbors to prevent further Russian invasions. So it's not safe. So, you know, apparently Ukrainian officials are still going to try to get boats out later this week. But their confidence in Russia's word is obviously shaken by this, you know, 24 hours later bombing. Um, do you have any theory on what happened here? Like... I'm just always struck by whether this is stupidity and incompetence and intra-Russian, like not talking to each other, the military and the diplomats, or why? if not, why bother with these negotiations if you're Russia and then immediately break the agreement? Like, aren't you just wasting your own time? I think this like feels intentional to me. And it reminded me, Tommy, in 2016, I think, uh, John Kerry very laboriously negotiated uh, a kind of ceasefire with humanitarian access into Syria. This mm-hmm. is like the height yeah, height of the, you know, Syrian crisis, humanitarian crisis, refugee crisis, and painstaking negotiations with Sergei Lavrov announced to much fanfare this ceasefire, you know, understood that that it was, you know, not a perfect deal. Um, but, any, you know, the premise was any lives that can be saved by getting aid in, that's the better. Within days, they they literally bombed like aid trucks going in, like aid trucks that were marked as aid trucks could be seen from above. The only planes flying in the air were Russian and Syrian. So the Russians either did this or knew mm-hmm. it was being done. And and this reminded me of that. Like the, you you reach a deal and, and almost immediately you violate the deal in the most flagrant way. Why would they do that? I think that for Russia... It, it's a kind of very callous, even sadistic reminder, hey, like we control whether this happens or not. You know, so sure, we're going to make this agreement and, and that'll be good for us to go around the world and say, see, we're trying to get this grain out. But then we're going to remind everybody, including the Ukrainians, that ultimately we're the ones who hold the lever as to whether this stuff gets in or out. And I think it's an indication that some of this stuff will get out, some of it won't. The Russians will be kind of controlling that access, leveraging that access, and it's gross. Um, and it does call into question, though, you know, ultimately this war probably ends at the negotiating table. That's where most wars end. Like, man, how can you trust these no, people? I know. You know? I know, I know. Did you see that uh, Bill Burns, the CIA director, was asked about Putin's health? And he said, there are lots of rumors about President Putin's health. And as far as we can tell, he's entirely too healthy. 
Yes. It's very yes. spicy from Bill. Yeah, that's about as spicy as Bill Bunsen. I just, it's, like, it's like, what the fuck? Whoa. <laughs> wow, okay. Kind of coffee? I mean, I agree one. with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, you know. Bill Burns. Wish he was off yeah. the stage yeah. a little bit. You know, I'm not saying I wish he was dead. I just wish he was, you know, incapacitated. I, but do you think it was prepared? I, yeah. I, it seemed like a quip. It seemed like a quip. Yeah. Yeah, CIA director usually, yeah, he picks his words. Um, also Tuesday, Ben, so the European Union energy ministers announced an agreement that calls on all nations in the EU to voluntarily cut their natural gas consumption between now and spring of next year. These guys are, these European countries are trying to prepare for a very long winter um, as Russia continues to reduce the amount of natural gas they're sending to Europe. Uh, they're, they're literally like metering down the amount that's going to Germany through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Germany, in particular, gets more than half of its natural gas from Russia, and shortages will impact regular people trying to heat their homes, as well as the German economy, which is driven heavily by this big industrial base that is super energy intensive. I saw one report that said Germany's chemical and pharmaceutical industries alone use 27% of the country's gas supply, so huge economic ramifications. Um, the That context that we just talked through made it all the more shocking and disgusting that the former German chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder, just yeah. popped up in Russia like today or yesterday. He said he decided to take a vacation to Moscow. <laughs> yeah. As one does. As one does, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Gerhard Schroeder uh has spent the last couple of decades uh raking in cash from Russian oil and gas interests and is still on the board of Rosneft, a Russian state controlled oil company. So great guy, Ben. Do you feel like people were always this awful? Like it feels like mm, there's good question. like, you know, like Gerhard Schroeder, Boris Johnson, like these people we talk about, you know, getting like you know, Alex Jones types and like, it just feels like there are more people like a Gerhard Schroeder 20 years ago would have been shamed out of doing that. You know, you, you know why? Um, uh, the the recency bias I normally have with all things in my life, I yeah. normally agree with you, but I was reading a lot about uh, Argentina in the late 70s yesterday. Those people are pretty awful. And the yeah. fact that like, not only uh, did they get the World Cup in 1978 and like they were torturing people so close to the stadium that the prisoners could hear it, but you know who was a special guest uh, at the games from the U.S.? Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, who I notice, um, you know, who helped, you know, obviously design many coups. Like, you know, he he was what John Bolton aspired to. Yeah, be. they're all yucking it up about their coups these days. And Kissinger has this book out, and like, you know, you, the guy's still treated like this kind of titan of everything, you know. Anyway, that's put that Did aside. The New York Post went after Joe Biden for not inviting Henry Kissinger. Yeah, yeah, like to the what? White House. It was like there's a mandate that uh, Henry <laughs> like, Kissinger comes good, in, like good every president. Point you know? for Joe. Yeah, that good, good for Joe Biden. Well, like, I wish, I wish we hadn't. Yeah, I, I feel gross that, that that we had him in. Um, I like this German thing though is something to watch. And look, there's just no way. Obviously, they're going to have to work hard to diversify energy. They're going to have to try to innovate their way out of this. Oftentimes, in wars, like catalyze societies to like change things faster than they would have otherwise, you know? And that's kind of what we're in, even though like Europe is not in the war, um, they are deeply implicated by it. Um, and so they're gonna have to move faster on alternative solutions, but there's no way around kind of making a decision. Are we going to make the case to our people again and again that that this is just what we're gonna have to do for the next couple of years? And it's Part of it's going to suck. There's no way to avoid that. No. Like it, the the danger would be to promise, oh, we'll deal with this. It's going to be fine, yeah. and, and or then just hope it it's end over soon, or hope it ends. You know, somehow. Like no, you have to project out that this could be a war that goes on like it's going now for a couple of years, and um, and make that case because yeah. otherwise, I think the the you know the seams are going to continue to pop 
in the in the coalition. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll get to how they've they've sort of popped already yeah. in Italy in yeah. a little bit. Um, also, Ben, do you see that the Russians said they're going to withdraw from the International Space Station after 2024 and focus building on their own? station yeah, so good luck with that guys <laughs> yeah. can you imagine imagine being on the first post russian sanction russian space launch yeah 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 well imagine Best of luck. it must be is it awkward up there like do they talk politics up there the uh, yeah station? i don't know because like, like so who's the cosmonaut they still call them cosmonauts uh, I guess, who's up there until 2024 and it's like hey you know how so, about uh, that uh wimbledon winner from kazakhstan you know like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. what neutral bullshit <laughs> yeah, you yeah, talk about yeah. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. All right, so the flip side of this energy equation is our next topic. And I'm, I just want to warn you in advance, Ben, that I went deep on this and it sent me into a, a spiral of I depression. Did I did okay. too. This is dark. Congo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is from the New York Times. Congo to auction land to oil companies. Our priority is not to save the planet. That's <laughs> yeah, a quote from yeah. the president, some minister or somebody. Um, I guess that's the theme these days, right? It's it's the DRC. It's Joe Manchin. Yeah. None of them wants to prioritize saving the planet. So here's why this is so bad. So the Democratic Republic of Congo, they want to auction off parts of the Congo rainforest to oil and gas companies for drilling. This is terrible for a lot of reasons. You know, there's a big uh, gorilla wildlife preserve there. There's all these old growth forests. But especially worrisome is the fact that the Congo is full of peatlands. Peatlands are waterlogged wet areas where dead vegetation doesn't really rot. So that means carbon gets sucked out of the atmosphere by plants. It's stored in, you know, limbs and leaves and shit. And when it falls down, it gets trapped in the water and just sits there. It doesn't really rot. It just doesn't escape back into the atmosphere. So it just traps carbon for a very long time. These kinds of swamps and peatlands make up 3% of the Earth's surface, but store twice as much carbon as all of the world's forests combined. So hugely important. Not good. So according to the Times- I don't like where this is going. Yes, the peatlands in Central Africa store the equivalent of 20 years of US fossil fuel emissions. So if that land is converted into a farm, cleared for oil and gas drilling, blah, 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 or just dries out, it will be literally an explosion of carbon into the atmosphere. So this announcement um, from the, the Congo government comes less than a year after the leaders of the COP26 Climate Change Summit announced the exact opposite, which was a 10-year agreement to protect the Congo Basin, which included all these international pledges of money from rich countries, from like the Bezos Climate yeah. Fund, blah, 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 spaceships, whatever else he does. So uh, I shouldn't mock him for this. If his, this is a good thing. This yeah, is yeah, a very yeah, good yeah. thing that he's doing if he's paying to help this. So obviously, Congo is not alone in pursuing new oil and gas deposits following the spike in energy prices and after Russia invaded Ukraine, right? Like I think Biden's debating whether to, you know, shut down drilling in the Arctic Circle or in other places as we speak. But I guess we just have to hope like that this current comment is just posturing and an and effort to get more international support, which they obviously deserve. But it's just, I don't know, man, it's like really, it's incredible to see every government pivot away from yeah. caring about climate change or doing anything about climate change kind of all at once in like the last six months. Yeah, it's pretty dark. And, you know, you almost can't hold it against this guy who said this thing because like... Yeah, you know, he's just some guy 
you know, in a country that's deeply impoverished. Um, but like at a certain point, the math just adds up. And like when you when you talk about things like the Congo Basin or the Amazon rainforest, right, which mm-hmm. is being you know steadily destroyed by right? Bolsonaro, one yeah. of the world's largest carbon capture rainforests, just could be tipped over to a point of no return where suddenly it's like an emitter, right? We, we, we just can't do that. Like we can't afford to do that. Yeah. And we have to recognize that the tone that is set by the big countries ends up filtering down to everybody else. And so if the US and other big countries are like, we are putting our shoulder to the wheel behind a clean energy transition, that's the way that the global economy is going to run. That's how people are going to make money. And oh, by the way, for countries like the DRC, we are going to subsidize your transition. We're going to basically pay you to not make money off of these oil fields. Um, that 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 will work. If we all lose our minds, you know, and I'm not trying to minimize how difficult high gas prices are, but if the only reaction to that is, oh my God, we have to find more fossil fuels, mm-hmm. it's going to set off like a global boom in fossil fuels and everybody's right. going to go looking for the way to get get a buck. These right? deposits are now worth more. Yeah. The price is going up. And, and so like the, the this instinctive reaction that we had to not pivot from what's right in front of us with high gas prices to, to a more diverse, clean energy driven transition, but rather say like, oh, time to put that on hold. And oh, by the way, the fact that Joe Manchin doesn't want to spend money on that means that we can't really do what we need to do. So we might as well just go back to the oil. Like- this is the kind of these are the kinds of things that people are going to look back on twenty years from now and be like, why on earth did they make that decision? Yeah. You know, and yep. so I think there's no substitute for setting a tone at the top of the international food chain in terms of the big countries and the big economies and the big companies and the big philanthropies to say like, no, now is actually the time that we have to like be extra vigilant to fill the space if mm-hmm. they need to be made whole by philanthropy like the Basel Earth Fund or by foreign uh, assistance like that. How about that, by the Belgians who who yeah. looted the country? Or the Belgians, the little reparations there. Like that that this that is a worthwhile investment yeah. for the pain that you're going to face. Truly. The, whatever we face from from destroying the Amazon and the Congo basin, the, those costs are going to be far higher than the gas prices are now. Yes, you know? for sure. Uh, all right, let's pivot from depression to a little anger for a minute. So, because your buddy Victor Orban's in the news. Oh, yeah. Um, Orban, again, for listeners, is a far-right nationalist prime minister of Hungary who is very popular in Republican circles these days. Who can forget when um, Tucker Carlson went over to Hungary to hang with Orban and broadcast from Budapest for a week. So, And Orban coming over to Texas for CPAC. So on Saturday, yeah, yes, he yeah. sure is. On Saturday, Orban delivered a speech from <laughs> Romania where he said the following, we, Hungarians, are not a mixed race and we do not want to become a mixed race. He later said that countries where European and non-Europeans mingle were, quote, no longer nations. So like you mentioned, August, Orban goes to Dallas, Texas for the annual uh, conservative political action conference or CPAC meeting, where he's going to be with Trump, Ted Cruz, and a bunch of other Republican politicians who I'm sure will pretend they never heard these comments uh, because deep down they know that's what their base wants to hear. Um, Earlier this year, CPAC actually held an event in Budapest. So, you know. And, Victor Orban saying the quiet part out loud. And here, Trump ben. endorsed him. Yeah, yeah I, I think what's um, you know I write about in, in, in after the fall I write about this speech he gave in Romania in 2014 and, and just pause on this. Why it's is the he, same yeah, venue? So why is he giving events. speeches in Romania? It, it, it's because he has this idea of the Hungarian nation as a kind of blood and soil nation, and he has like the historical grievance was that the borders that were drawn for Hungary after World War One 
kind of, you know, uh, carved out a bunch of ethnic Hungarians who are in countries like Romania, right? Now sounds very Putin-like. Yeah, very. Well, I mean, to to take it, a, you know, even a notch darker, that's very Hitler-like, right? Yeah, that was yeah. Hitler's original grievance, right? The the Sudetenland, the yeah, Germans yeah. outside of Germany who were in Czechoslovakia or Austria or whatever. So just by going there and kind of giving this kind of nationalist address to these ethnic Hungarians, he's tapping into the vein of blood and soil nationalism. Now, the speech he gave in 2014 that I wrote about used to be the most controversial speech he'd given there, which is where he called for something called illiberal democracy. Mm -hmm. He said, basically, democracy's dying. The future models are set by China and Russia, and we're going to have illiberal democracies, which are basically like soft autocracies, right? I think the question about Orban, and in many ways, you could say it's also the question about people like Trump and Stephen Miller and and maybe hangs over Ron DeSantis, is do they, like, is it possible to play footsie with fascism and 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 blood and soil nationalism without becoming the full thing? Mm-hmm. And I think what Orban is showing us is, no, like, the, you get on that trajectory, you start with a liberal democracy, and pretty soon you're talking about mixed race, you know? Because yep. that's what this ideology is about. It's about ethno-nationalism, right? And so he's just saying the quiet part out loud. I don't have high hopes that the Republicans will, like, distance themselves from this no. garbage, you know? No, I don't either. It's what they believe. It's what Tucker Carlson's Great Replacement oh, yeah. Theory Tucker is a version it. of the same thing. Yeah, and, and Orban talks about the Great Replacement Theory all the time. Yeah. So that's dark. Um, another dark story, but one that, you know, inc- at least includes um, some contrition, uh, which is on Monday, Pope Francis visited Canada, and he apologized for the Catholic Church's role in administering schools where more than 150,000 indigenous children were forced to attend between 1881 and 1996. These children were forcibly taken from their homes. Many were starved, physically or sexually abused, and pressured to abandon their culture and language uh, in what has been called uh, a cultural genocide. We talked about this these schools on the show last year because unmarked graves of hundreds, if not thousands, of indigenous children were found on the grounds where these schools used to operate. So Pope Francis uh, initially met with some, a delegation from Canada, apologized, I believe, last year, and then he made the trip himself uh, and went to Canada this week where he said, quote, with shame and unambiguously, I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against indigenous peoples. He later said the schools were a deplorable evil and that, and they were part of, quote, a colonizing mentality of the times. Um, survivors, I think, appreciated the apology but want more, including financial compensation, uh, prosecution of surviving abusers, and the release of all the records that are available from the time. So obviously long overdue, um, but it does seem good that the, the Pope went. Yeah, long overdue. And, and you know, I think that those demands are very reasonable. Me too, <laughs> um, yes. There, there's uh, some sort of compensation funds that are being set up, but I think yeah. it's like, Canadian Catholic organizations that are then fundraising to pay them. And I think these guys are like, look, yeah, Vagans cut a check. Cash. Yeah. yeah. I, I, one of the other interesting things about watching that, you know, Pope Francis looked pretty old. Um, he's like 85, I think. Yeah. And, and you kind of forget he's out there, right? Like, um, but I mean, I think he deserves credit. Like he's, he's clearly, you know, he seems like he's out beyond the comfort zone of the the traditionalist over there at the oh, Vatican, yeah. you know, like it definitely has that feeling of a guy running an institution but not having full. Well, and, and the right wing Catholics in the U.S. savage. Him. They savage. Him, I caught right? a, a Newsmax segment on this, yeah, where they mocked the woke Pope's white apology tour. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, right? like th- this is so like these children were. Uh, there were some schools where like seventy five percent of the kids who attended died. 
I mean, this is like yeah. the most horrific thing you've ever heard. And, and and yet it gets lumped in with like like wokeness, wokeness and like social media. It's like the, the dumbing down of all that. But I think it, it it's an interesting reminder. You never know quite exactly what's happening in the Vatican. But my sense has been that Francis has been trying to push the envelope on on these historical reconciliation and mm-hmm. apology issues. On obviously, you know, trying to catch up to the sexual abuse scandals and and all manner of other things in the Catholic Church, and you, you feel him doing what he can with his own actions. Um, the question is, can the institution kind of get to where he is? Yeah. And so the apology is an indication, like Pope Francis has had, is in the right place on this thing. Can he or the powers that be, or Catholics generally, make sure that the institution? does its part. And mm-hmm. that's when things like compensation come into play. Yes. Know? Yes. Agreed. Um, so Francis, I think he had a broken knee too. He's yeah. Old, he was in a wheelchair. wheelchair. Yeah. Like, yeah, it didn't look So good. he's in Canada Trudeau right had now. like the haircut though. Oh, uh, did he? Yeah. Oh, another scandal yeah. for yeah, the right yeah, wing. Yeah. Um, back home in Italy, things are still a mess. Uh, the Italian prime minister. Good transition. Thank you, Mario Draghi. He resigned last week. We talked about this, I think two weeks ago, how he, he resigned. They asked him not to resign. But then Draghi finally resigned for good after his efforts to keep together the the fragile government coalition just completely failed. The parties are now preparing for a general election in late September. I think it's September 25th. Um, there is obviously like, you know, considerable amount of time between now and election day and the parties will likely jockey for position, form alliances. But, you know, most people currently think that the results of this September election will be a, a more right wing government. And I saw one pollster suggesting that, you know, if these center left parties remain divided, then an alliance of three right wing parties could conceivably win a two thirds majority in both houses of parliament, which would get you into Viktor Orban territory and give you the ability to do things like amend the constitution, which would be very bad. Uh, Hopefully that doesn't happen. So, you know, the challenge though, Ben, is like the real, the only option for the democratic parties, who are like the social Democrats, is to align with the populist and kind of shitty five-star movement. But- the Democrats are so furious at Five Star for abandoning Draghi that they say the rift is irreversible. The Five Star guys were like they wanted, you know, basic income, minimum salaries, issues like that to get more attention. So the concern now is that right wing parties like the League, Brothers of Italy, and then uh, Silvio Berlusconi's party, Forza Italia. That guy, that guy just never dies, does it? I, I don't, like there's just that's a theme today, just creeps who never yeah. go away could form a coalition and really do well. So w- another one we're going to watch and uh, canary in the coal mine for high energy prices and Ukraine-Russia policy. Yeah, no, this could be a huge spoiler inside the EU and like a crack in the kind of Western European countries, right? Um, drifting in this fascist direction. It's not, not good. Italian fascism is, you know- uh, A little history there. Yeah, it's a little history. It's not great. Um, I mean, look, I, I, I think that you've had these huge divisions and splintering on the center to the left in Italy, and like they just have to get their shit together here, right? Totally. And there just has to be a coherent political message with the dose of populism, by the way, economic populism, um, that they can carry forward. And at the end of the day, like, you know, yeah, you're going to have to decide, like, can you try to uh, can you try to, to eclipse these people at the ballot box or, or can you try to engineer some kind of complex unity scheme to at least prevent worse outcomes. But but here, I, I think you really, you know, the Italian left has been on its back foot for about a decade, mm-hmm. you know, or, or since really 2016 when, when Matteo Renzi kind of lost control right. of things there, right? So, um, it, it, like, hopefully, like, someone can come out um, of that pack and, and, and unify what has been a very divided left. 
Yes, very, very troublesome. Um, so, Ben, you know, the area close to home for you, close to your heart, uh, Myanmar is is looking pretty grim. Uh, on Monday, the Myanmar military announced that they had executed four democracy activists. Uh, these men were accused of helping the resistance movement that's been fighting back since the military staged a coup last year. They were sentenced in secret. They were just closed door trials uh, and then executed. And then I think the fact that the military decided to announce these four executions, despite international outcries and pressure from you know Cambodia, uh, uh, Malaysian, like the other countries in the region that said, please don't do this. And they did it anyway. It just shows a shocking new level of impunity. What do we know about these men who were murdered? And what do you think it tells us about like the current state of affairs in, in Myanmar? So these were really prominent people. Um, like these were people, some, you know, some had roots back into the 1988 uh, protest movement with Aung San Suu Kyi. They'd been political prisoners before the opening mm-hmm. um, in around 2011, 2012. Then some of them served in parliament. These were like active politicians. Wow. Um, and then, and then you know, interestingly, one was like a hip hop artist. He's like a rapper, um, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the, a lot of the, you know, civil society-based artistic opposition to the junta or the military government came through this kind of thriving political hip-hop scene. So you had this kind of cross-section of very prominent people who have been political prisoners, politicians, artists, um, very well-known people. And, you know, clearly this was a message that, like, we don't give a shit about international opinion. And if you oppose us, you could ultimately die, right? They mm-hmm. want to send the starkest possible message. What was notable with me, Tommy, is, like, in addition to the U.S. and, and ASEAN, the Southeast Asian countries, like you indicated, Cambodia, Hun Sen, like the prime minister of Cambodia, not exactly a liberal guy, no, right? Like no. this guy is yeah. basically a dictator. He appealed for them to not do this, right? If you are that far out of step with even like a Hun Sen, um, I think there's some danger in this for the junta. Like they're maximizing their own isolation, even though they're in a, they're in a weaker position than they were back when they ran things, you know, completely 20 years ago because there's bigger unrest. There's right, a, there's a movement. There's a more organized armed opposition. And so what what I see is just a grinding civil conflict that continues tragically. Well, so I, I saw like the White House NSC spokesperson statement was like, you know, the U.S. condemns in the strongest possible terms, you know, this event. It's, it, you know, it seemed like something I could have put out when I yeah. was in that job, right? Yeah. And did a million times. I mean, do you think we're just going to go back to an, like another endless cycle of like sanctions and isolation and et cetera? Or are there other paths here to pressure them? I think that the... Um, like the 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 pressure that that matters the most is the pressure that's coming from the closest to them. So the Southeast Asian countries, ASEAN, these ten Southeast Asian countries. This includes the countries on their border, like like Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. Um, you know th- that's that's their neighbor. That's the club of countries that that Myanmar wants to be in, and them being kind of outside of that club, cut off. Um, that that does isolate them. It, it, it hurts them in a way that the Chinese may try to make whole. But then the other thing is real outreach to the opposition. Like this is, we always think about just pressure and sanctions. Mm-hmm. Who is talking to the kind of government? Some of them are in exile. Some of them are in the country fighting, yeah. you know? Um, I'm not saying getting into like an arm these people kind of situation. I'm just talking about like political context, dialogue, like demonstrating that that, that, that we really don't think the junta, this is a junta that when they put this to a vote, they always lost like 90% of the vote. Right. So this is not even like a 50-50 situation, popular, right? Yeah. It's not even close to popular. So I think part of what you have to be doing, not just the U.S., but these other countries, is keeping very open lines with 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 other 
uh, leaders inside and outside of the country, um, the ethnic groups also that are organized inside the country and that resist the junta. And then keeping an eye on Aung San Suu Kyi, like she's in prison too. Yeah, like yeah. Um, her, her, anything happens to her, that could be a, a real triggering event for oh like an God. explosion in that country yeah. too. Um, a few more quick things before we get to your interview. So uh, families of the victims of the 9-11 attacks are, are keeping up the pressure on President Trump for hosting the Saudi-owned Live Golf Tour tournament at his course in Bedminster. I think it's this weekend. Uh, and the players, they're also pressuring the players for participating. They released a television spot today. Let's hear that. My two brothers were murdered on 9-11. I live every single day without my father. FBI files show the Saudi government was involved. This golf tournament is taking place 50 miles from ground zero. It's disgusting. Worse than a slap in the face. You're taking money from an evil regime. These are 3,000 Americans that were killed on American soil. How much money to turn your back on your own country? 200 million? Sure. I'll forget about their atrocities. I'm never going to forget, never going to forgive the golfers for taking this blood money. Tough, tough, tough ad right there. Um, ben, I think you can see that Trump is worried about this, but obviously not enough yet to cancel the tournament. He did an interview with the Wall Street Journal where he said that the Live Tour has been worth billions of dollars in publicity to the Saudis. Yeah, no shit. It's called sports washing. Yeah. Um, and said that the controversy over the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi has, quote, totally died down. Um, and he also pretended not to know why the 9-11 families would be upset about the tournament happening at his course, which is absurd on its face. But also Trump, a Trump aide called them a few days ago and tried to, like, talk them out of being critical. So I don't know. I mean, I think, look, I think it's going to happen. But um, this could take, uh, you know, a chunk out of his political standing. This is pretty bad. Yeah. At a time when, you know, his political standing seems to be He's a little wobbly. Here. Down. He's a little wobbly here. Uh I mean, keep in mind, this is the guy who like made up the story about like watching Muslims celebrating 9-11. Like, yeah, he, that's right. He's willing to demagogue 9-11 for his own purposes. And he also specifically blamed yeah. Saudis in the past in, in interviews. Yeah. So this guy, you know, totally full of shit. I mean, I, I think that like this is one of those things where it, it's so so many things that everybody intuitively knows are gross about the world come together in one thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like golf right like no offense to people play golf like you think it's gross you know, i don't think it's gross <laughs> but it's obviously associated with wealth right oh like, sure for like sure. golf is is something that is already associated with being a bit out of reach to normal people yeah, the and fancy club something that fancy yeah. people do at fancy clubs the saudis like murderous dictatorship sports sports washing through golf is like like yachting is the only thing they could have done that would have been a little more like kind f1 of just reminding everybody that this is about money yeah um trump wanting to make a buck and getting paid directly mm -hmm. to have the, this isn't like a bank shot they are like paying him no there's no like, spinning this yeah. it's like clearly and then trump himself saying that like all the attention has been like good publicity it, it, like which speaks to what everybody knows is kind of wrong yeah, with yeah. like our media. He said you know? the quiet part out yeah, loud. Yeah, he said yeah. the, yeah. So like- It's really distracting from their murders. About, everything about this event is the quiet part out loud. It's like, yeah. it's like we're going to, ostentatious wealth in your face, like Saudi dictatorship in your face, like 9-11, you know, profiteering for political gain and then not giving shit about the victims. Like it's all right there. And so maybe, just maybe, this is one of those things that actually sticks, right? Because yeah. it's like, it's completely and utterly fucking indefensible. Um, that said, like when you see it, you're like, oh, this would be a cleaner shot if 
We didn't just like fist bump wash yeah, this guy like I a know. couple of weeks earlier. I do think there's a leave of den. I, I do think there's a leave of den because like this is going to piss off like New York fighter fighters and cops and like the yeah. set of people that Trump thinks are his guys. MAGA type people. You know, MAGA type people. In the same way that I do think that in some way the lack of regard for the law enforcement, and I know this was an issue on, on Twitter, January 6th, yeah. but like the, the lack of regard for law enforcement on January 6th kind of put the lie to the, the, the blue line crap. Totally. You know, like, like Trump is... You know, he's taken some pretty direct hits at his own base uh, in, the, in these things. And I, I think he's losing altitude. I, I, I really do, too. And I, it's not wish casting like this feels no, bad. No, this feels bad. Um, speaking of, uh, uh, you know, former blowhard politicians who won't go away, Boris Johnson did another interview. Mm. Uh, the Telegraph reported that Boris told his buddy, who's a former conservative party fundraiser, that he doesn't want to resign and that he wants to be the Tory party's leader during the next general election. Boris's friend, it's like one conversation with one guy, I made up this yeah. whole story. It's a guy named Classic Lord, British tabloid. Yeah. Lord Crudis of Shoreditch. <laughs> yeah. That can't that cannot be a real that's name. A thing. I, I do not believe that's, that's a real a name. Thing. That's something from fucking He's, Harry Potter. Yeah, Down um, Abbey season five, right? But there. apparently Lord Crudis uh, has launched a bring back <laughs> Boris campaign. So like again, that this is our life now. It's like we're talking about uh 20, 2042, we're gonna be doing a podcast about Boris Johnson, Bibi Netanyahu's yeah. resurgence, and like Donald Trump Jr.'s yeah. campaign, and and Gerhard Schroeder will be at like Putin's DACA <laughs> and the Black Sea or something. Um, yeah, I mean, the like the thing that's also so crazy about this is that like th- we're like not even weeks away from Boris resigning, and you you know you he's like, basically yeah, we like, know you want to come winking back. at people like I didn't really want to do it. Telegraph's kind of his home base paper there, and uh, and the reality is that the Conservative Party is so strange and British nominating is so strange in general like watching this 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 competition play out you realize it's like just like a couple hundred thousand people yeah. who are probably the you know among the nuttiest people so um yeah boris a bit of a zombie like energy out of him i mean at some point this means that the tories themselves are gonna have to pretty definitively break from the guy yeah you know? they so better hurry up liz trust when you know when you're prime minister uh, like this is going to be a guy with a knife following you around looking at your back. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Call the priest. Could need like a excommunication here. Yeah, yeah. Um, residents of the Australian town of Mildura, Ben, were pretty freaked out last week when they looked up and they saw the sky above them glowing pink. They were wondering, was this aliens? Is the end mm. of days? No. Turns out it was a medical cannabis facility that was testing out LED lights that created an effect that just happened to make people think they were high as hell. Uh, Wait, is that like the ultimate hotbox though? Like if you breathe that in, were you? No, no. So the, the Washington Post had a fun story on this. I guess they use red spectrum LED lights. Those help yeah. the plants grow. File that one away. And someone accidentally left the curtains open in the facility. So all of a sudden the entire sky just lit up like it was some sort of like sunset. So I don't know, I guess the lesson is if the sky is pink, like don't freak out. Just- is- Drive to the, is this what happens when a labor government gets in, though? Like just explosions of marijuana? <laughs> marijuana, just like I, across the sky. I feel like when we visit Australia, there's usually something kind of cool like this happening. Maybe we need like those guys, Dan and those guys from the Rational Field Podcast, mm-hmm. to go check it out. You they know, should. Go, go, do some investigative work on the scene. It's like 350 miles from Melbourne, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, road trip? Yeah, yeah road trip it. Road yeah, trip. why not? Yeah. Uh, speaking of things uh, that will make you feel like you've been taking bong hits, uh, the Saudis, again, are in the news because... The government released a design oh, for yeah. something called the line. I flagged this for you. Yeah, <laughs> five hundred meter, one hundred seventy kilometer long <laughs> vertical city. Wait for it. Uh, the Saudis—they released drawings and like a hype video that Ben sent around to a text thread of us this morning, and um, I guess to the press. So it looks like two gigantic mirrors were like laid on their side, 
and run parallel next to each other for miles across the desert. Like like it's a like it's God's razor blade. Yeah, right. It's just yeah. ridiculous looking. Um, I will spare listeners all the absurd utopian promises about like sustainable this and you'll never get in the car that and ventilation. It's nonsense. Um, which here's what I want to know. Which do you think is more likely to get constructed? The line Saudi buildings or the volcano powered Bitcoin city in El Salvador? <laughs> oh man, I, I guess I'd have to go with the line because at least mm-hmm. they actually have some money there. Um, yeah. I will say that like the way this video was presented, people need to look at this and, and yeah, I, I recommend take an edible, wait mm-hmm. about an hour about and then, an hour, yeah. you, know, you know, crank this you thing take up. Another. Um, this thing is like totally fucking bonkers, but it is presented like the crown, his majesty's vision. Like it is very much personalized to MBS and the amount of megalomania that it would take a human being. I mean, that's what's truly scary about this. Yeah. Like to think, okay, I have an idea. I'm going to pay to get, and you know, these architects are probably being offered more than the golfers, right? So like, much Just money. come, you know, to sit in a room and be like, this is going to be like a line through the desert and we're going to have like floating Jetsons cars and all this stuff. And like, there's a degree of megalomania here that that is is a bit alarming. I mean, think about this. Like, okay, we got this big country. We got all these people. We're going to build two buildings that are run parallel that are 170 kilometers long and jam everybody into them. And that's a good use of space and an idea. And put giant mirrors in the desert. Like, they're going to reflect sun and melt shit and <laughs> kill wildlife. Like, would you want to live in like a compressed city like that? Though? No. Like that's kind of like I, what I don't get is like what. Well, you know, the Saudis is a very egalitarian yeah. uh, society <laughs> yeah, yeah, where yeah. everybody will get a yeah, free. Yeah, I'm sure everybody will get a fair shake. Yeah, you get a window yeah, yeah, and everything yeah. else. It's just so, it's like, yeah, it, like who, you're right. The weirder thing is like someone is indulging MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and yeah. he thinks that releasing this will make him look good. And he has this little coterie of advisors who tell him, yeah, yeah, do it. Get that out there. I just don't get, like our friend Cody Keenan pointed this out. Like, why wouldn't you just build a circle? That like, seems more logical. Of a line. Like, it, uh, you know, it's literally like you built a city, like it's like the High Line in New York or something. It's, it's very strange. Right. Is the idea that like everyone has a view of the ocean if it's a line? You do it on the coasts? I think the idea is that then there's this like high-speed transportation that you can get from one side of the line to the next, like, faster yeah, you could do that in a curve right? but literally it looks like a bunch of architects got high in like Riyadh and you know drew some stuff and they made the <laughs> they drew two lines yeah, yeah. they had like one ruler yeah, yeah. And they're like, what what was the breakthrough like what was like wait a second i got it i got it it's just a line you know it's so dumb it's so dumb and they'll probably build some version of it because they have so much money like, right you know, because yeah. the version of this yeah. podcast that would actually push back on him in saudi arabia would get you executed <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so he'll that. never hear this that. Yeah. thank god yeah, yeah. <laughs> well knock on wood yeah um well, yeah. Anyway, that guy sucks. Uh, okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Jana Nemsova about all things Russia and the amazing new podcast that's coming out. So stick around for that. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. (laughs) 
I'm very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World a Russian journalist and activist, a leader of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation, and co-host of the new podcast, Another Russia, with me, Jana Nemtsova. Jana, so good to see you. And good to see you, and thank you for inviting me on your show. Well, w- look, it's really exciting. It's, uh, it's great to have Another Russia out in the world, uh, the story of, of your father and your family and you uh, out in the world. We want to just uh, introduce people a bit more to this podcast uh, and to you and the story and, and kind of bring it uh, up to, to date here. So just to, to start this conversation, um, why don't you just remind uh, our listeners who your father was um, and, and what the stories that we're telling in the podcast? So um, my father was Boris Nemtsov. Uh, Boris Nemtsov was a statesman. He held senior positions in the 90s under Yeltsin's uh, presidency. But uh, shortly after Putin came to power uh, in early 2000s, he uh, uh, lost the parliamentary elections. And in 2008, Seven, he joined the opposition movement and became one of the most fiercest Putin's critics. Uh, he was a very powerful voice uh, in our country. Uh, when uh, Putin decided to annex Crimea, my father was one of the few people who openly criticized this move of Putin. He was against the war in Ukraine, which didn't actually start on the 24th of February 2022, but it started in 2014, uh, mainly in Donbass, in East Ukraine. My father was assassinated on the 27th of February 2015 in Moscow, uh, in the very heart of the city, just in front of the Kremlin walls. Yeah, so basically, you know, your father had been heir apparent to Boris Yeltsin, uh, then uh, the leading opposition figure, and then this terrible assassination. You mentioned the situation in, in Ukraine, and one of the things that was interesting to me in going back and, and telling this story with you was just how outspoken uh, your father was against the war in Ukraine, against the annexation of Crimea at a time when, when a lot of people in Russia were obviously going along with that and supporting it. Um, there was that one interview in particular you found uh, g- give people a sense of the kind of things that your father was saying literally up until the eve before he, the night before he was assassinated uh, about Putin and, and the war in Ukraine. Well, uh, my father actually uh, used quite strong terms when he described uh, Putin and his uh, policies uh, in Ukraine. Uh, during his last interview, uh, he described Putin as a pathological liar. Uh, and that he actually started an absolutely insane war against the country, which is actually was, unfortunately, one of the closest countries uh, culturally uh, in the post-Soviet space. So he uh, he, he uh, attacked uh, Vladimir Putin quite personally, when he was in Kiev, there was a conference in Kiev in 2015. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know, once again, how to say it in English, but it was quite strong. He basically said, like, he's completely mad, but he used a stronger term to describe Vladimir Putin. Uh, and at the same time, um, my father, so 
was a political prophet because he, as you said rightly, he was among the few ones who condemned the annexation of Crimea and who basically predicted the war uh, with Ukraine. Uh, but uh, he was also quite, you know, quite a um, courageous person. And in some of his interviews, he said, Putin can kill me. I'm not sure that he believed in that, but I think that he understood that risk. And that is why at some point of time in 2014, he decided to leave Russia and he spent one, uh, one month in Israel. Uh, and then he decided to come back and to fight with Putin. Once he was asked, uh, it, it, it was in one of his interviews, he was asked, you know, like, Boris, do you think that Putin actually needs you? And he responded, you know, I do not care whether Putin needs me. I know that many Russians need me. And that is why I'm here. That is why I am working. That is why I'm a politician and I'm fighting for a democratic Russia because we are uh, now on the wrong track. And I think that Many Russians still need my father. My father has become a symbol of resistance. Uh, I know lots of people who were teenagers when my father was assassinated, it was more than seven years ago, and they still discover my father. And I get a lot of messages on social media, a lot of direct messages, and people are saying like, or oh, your father was such a great political visionary. I've just watched like hundreds of interviews. His videos after the invasion of Ukraine are going viral. So he is an important politician for Russia. I know that in the United States of America, when Eubanks like say Russia, people <laughs> think Putin. Uh, Putin. Yeah, Putin. So that is bad. Russia is a complex country and it has always... It has always had different paths, but unfortunately, up to these days, Russia chose uh, a dictatorial uh, way of de development, except for those 10 years, almost 10, year, 10 years, yes, under Yeltsin. Uh, but still, I think that our past does not define our future. And I believe in another Russia. I know that it, it, it now exists only in my imagination. <laughs> and, but I think we should think about our future and we should envision at least how the future can look like and we should have hope. I think that that podcast gives hope uh, for Russians and for many, many Russians, by the way, who live in the United States of America. So... I'm yeah. I'm being like uh, too wordy. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, too no. It's a, well, I, 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 uh, you mentioned obviously the war in Ukraine and and Russia is deeper in dictatorship than it has been at any point since the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, what 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 motivated you to want to tell this story again now? Um, uh, why is this a, a, an important story for people to hear right now with the the war in Ukraine and everything that's going on? As I said, uh, first of all, the discourse over Russia, around Russia, is dominated by Vladimir Putin. And I think that is really misleading 
because an increasing number of Russians do not actually support Putin. You know, in dictatorships, uh, you cannot trust any opinion polls because we live right now in a dictatorship. People are, are fear to share what they think about politics, about Vladimir Putin, about the war in Ukraine. So we do not know the truth. That is one thing. And I know our society is very polarized, but I think that at least 40% of Russians do not support the war with Ukraine. So, uh, and those Russians, broadly speaking, are represented by my father. And also it's very important from the historical point of view, it happens very rarely that a politician as a, is a prophet. It was with Churchill who predicted the war with Germany and who warned many politicians in the United Kingdom and across Europe of the threat of Hitler. And I think that my father was uh, this person who warned people in Russia and outside the country. He traveled many times to the United States of America. He met with some senators. He warned about the threat of Putin, how dangerous uh, he was. That's what he said. And that is true. So there, sometimes there are people who are capable of predicting the future, though uh, it's, it's very, very difficult, and we have to listen to those people. And once again, the image of Russia right now uh, is extremely bad. It is dreadful. Uh, and I think that it's uh, an important moment to remind uh, that like Russia is very diverse, that Russians are not all the same, that not all Russians are willing to live uh, under, under the dictator, and Putin is a dictator. So it's also among everything else, though, like this is just part of what was so compelling to me in telling the story was just what a human story it is. I mean, on the one hand, your, your father's story traces the arc of Russia, right? He's there in the aftermath of Chernobyl protesting that. He's there at the fall of the Soviet Union. He's there... Uh, as the kind of rising star at the onset of democracy and capitalism. He's there fighting the oligarchs. He's there fighting against Putin. He's there opposing the war. You know, like you can kind of trace Russian history in your father's history. But then there's just also this very compelling figure, uh, kind of a colorful guy. Um, you guys obviously had this incredibly close relationship. I think a lot of people sometimes, you know, probably people listen to this podcast, you know, they see people who take huge risks, you know, people like, well, obviously like your dad, but like an Alexei Navalny who's in prison now, or, you know, people who are in prison in, in Belarus next door, or people who are protesting, you know, in Myanmar against uh, the military regime there. And they wonder, particularly for prominent kind of dissidents and political opposition figures like your father, I think people wonder, what's it like to be related to those people? <laughs> you know, what's it like to be the 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 spouse or daughter or son of of somebody who's taking on all that risk. I mean, what would you tell people about what what is that like? What was it like for you at the time, knowing that your father was in danger, watching him, and and the stories you tell in the podcast of visiting him in prison? I mean, how do you explain that to somebody? 
I just want to say one more thing. I think that is important about my father that can be a source of inspiration for many people across the world, uh, that my father, as you said, was an establishment politician, and then he lost everything, and he started from scratch. Yeah, uh, yeah. He started because he uh, believed in his values, and he wanted to defend those values, and he could start things from really from, from the very beginning. That is very compelling as a story. Uh, well, when my father was uh, like a senior statesman, uh, just I think that his story, his political career basically defined me so much. Yeah, yeah. I think hadn't my father been Boris Nemtsov, I wouldn't have been involved in social activism or political journalism. Yeah, I would have clearly chosen another path. And now, especially uh, when my father was so brutally killed, uh, it was a moral choice for me, not only to speak out, but to do something meaningful to keep his political legacy alive. And this podcast also serves this aim and it's a huge part of my life, a huge part of my professional life to keep his political legacy because we all know that uh, people's memories are very short and we have to remind them of those people, of those people who take huge risks. But you also mentioned uh, the case when he uh, ended up in prison for 15 days. Uh, I felt very sorry for him. Uh, probably even I felt embarrassed that my father, uh, for some uh, reason, ended up in prison. So I was surrounded like by uh, very successful people who mm -hmm. were working like in businesses, who were making money, uh, Moscow was like a growing capital that attracted yeah. lots of foreigners and people just lived their lives. They didn't care about the future. They didn't care about politics. politics. They were disengaged. And in a way, uh, up probably to this moment even, um, I felt like an outsider in, in, in this mm. circle because... We had, uh, we had a different story. We had a different family story. My father was under incredible pressure. Uh, and uh, it, we could feel it, especially after the annexation of Crimea. Because once again, 86%, literally, probably even 90% of Russians supported the annexation of Crimea. They yeah. didn't see anything wrong about that. And then they're their billboards of your father saying, you know, national traitor up. I mean, that's that's not got to be easy thing. Right. They, he, like like uh, the regime of Putin uh, was trying and is still trying to marginalize uh, a lot of people. And they at that time, they were partially successful. So sometimes when I, I worked at, at RBC, the privately owned uh, television network, it was a business net, uh, business news network. So, and yes, I didn't feel that confident because like 
people people lots of people supported like Crimea and they couldn't understand why me and my father were against that because like uh Putin got uh got this peninsula without uh, any blood so it was almost bloodless yeah. and we should be happy about that and we were we were like uh shocked uh and we felt uh that it would lead to something uh something really worse, awful like a, some yeah. something disastrous and that happened so it's difficult uh it's difficult and i think it's the same for all families uh across the globe uh whose fathers or mothers are fighters for uh, who are fighting uh dictators uh, because it's this story uh is universal it's not yeah. only about Russia it's about all dictatorships and the risks associated with those regimes yeah no uh, that's well said and that uh, i think that really um that's what really stood out to me um, or one of the things that stood out for me in the podcast. What I'm just curious in going back and telling this whole story. Did, did anything? Did you learn anything new, or did anything surprise you um, as you kind of retrace these events of your father's life and your life? Well, actually, uh, um, earlier this year, my book, my father's daughter, was uh, published in Russia. It has become a bestseller. So, of course, I had known a lot of facts. Uh, about my father, because when I was writing this book, I uh, spoke to a bunch of new people. But for this podcast, I also, as as the executive producer, <laughs> I also <laughs> I, I also did a lot of background interviews, and I met with my father's colleagues who worked uh, with him uh, when he was governor of the province of Nizhny Novgorod, and what actually. Uh, still surprises me that there are people who worked with my father in the 90s and who do not now oppose Putin, but uh, they still openly, openly say, despite all those censorship laws, that they have huge respect for my father uh, and they try to keep... Uh, the memory uh, of him alive. And this is one person who actually he is the member of the United Fresher. He works mm. in the regional Putin's parliament. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he works in the regional parliament of, uh, of, of, uh, of Nizhny Novgorod, right? And he's still, uh, I, I, I follow him on Instagram and he still uh, writes a lot of posts about my father and about that time so that's quite surprising that people yeah. are not afraid to say we respect boris himself and probably it was the best, best period in our life yeah i mean that's really interesting because you know they're the people that are you know diehard putin supporters then they're the people that are are strong putin opponents and, and a lot of those people have had to either leave the country or but then they're some of these people you're describing, anybody who can, you know, kind of go along with Putin, but also still have respect for Boris Nemtsov is more complicated, <laughs> is somewhere in the middle. And I guess the question is, you know, a lot of people watch the war and they think, are these costs finally going to cause more of those Russians to move away from Putin? Those people who are kind of, you know, they, they don't love Putin, but they've kind of gone along with the whole thing. 
um, and they don't want to take the risk of opposing Putin. Do you think, what do you think it will take to get more Russians to, to, to oppose what Putin's doing? You know, is, is there a danger to him that if, if the war goes on and the casualties mount and the economy continues to take a hit, at some point will his grip on, on the Russian people loosen? How, how do you, uh, that's obviously the big question, but how do you evaluate that based on, on your, you know, your experience? I think that the answer is very simple and uh, very clear, though it's quite difficult to achieve it. So uh, what should happen? Putin should be militarily defeated uh, by Ukraine. So, and it will change everything. Uh, It will ruin uh, Putin's Putin's positions in Russia. He will lose all his support uh, around him. Uh, I mean, people on our people, they, once again, I think our side is polarized. I think like 50%, roughly same, roughly same, 50% uh, of Russians are supportive uh, of the war and uh, 50% uh, do not support the war. But they are not active because they fear we have a lot of repressive laws in our country. So you can get into jail if you openly say, uh, I am against the war with Ukraine. If even you call it the war, it can get you to, j- uh, to jail. So that's uh, you should take it into account. Uh, yeah. It's a dictatorship. Uh, yeah. And uh, all uh, dissenting voices are under direct danger. Uh, but if Russia loses in this war, it will change everything. And that is why... I'm not a politician, but I understand how difficult it is to support Ukraine for such a long period of time. I can understand that people are tired of it because everybody actually pays a price. Uh, You see how high the oil prices are, uh, gas prices, whatever. Uh, There is uh, the food crisis, everything. But if we want to stop a dictator, we should defeat him. That's it. Yeah. It worked yeah. in the past. It wor- it will work right now. It, yeah. And I think that like the international community should acknowledge that and not forget about that. Yeah. No, and it but it also suggests, you know, it's kind of a uh, Putin must understand that too, um, which makes this this war so existential to him. Well, so I, I, mean, I, I mean, I mean, yeah. I just want to say that so these are not just beautiful words that Ukraine is on the front line of the fight for democracy and freedom. Yeah, it yeah. is true. Yeah, no, it is. It, sometimes that's true. Um, sometimes that that cliche is true, and this is one of those times. I, I wondered, you know, what what would your father make of the podcast? Do you think, if, if <laughs> you know, I mean, I know, I know you you have kind of an ongoing. Uh, you know, even though he's gone, I, I I feel his presence in your life, and I feel you evaluate things you do through his eyes. Uh, that's something I've learned about you in the five years we've been friends. Um, so, how, how do you look at this through his through his eyes? I don't know. I think that he would be positively shocked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that is uh, if we are talking about it. Uh, about the production, about the process, about the fact that uh, we together, 
once again, I am not a native speaker. I'm not, uh, English is a foreign language for me. Yeah, yeah. And I worked so much on my English, you know that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I tried so hard to improve my pronunciation, uh, taking uh, sessions with Patrick Driver, who is a British actor. Uh, I invested so much in that. My time, um, whatever, uh, my talent, if I have any, everything. Uh, and it's quite a rare achievement that we manage, I managed to do that with you and it's an honor for me. So I think my father would be very happy for me because he wanted me to build a successful career. He wanted me to be financially independent. He didn't want me to... Uh, be dependent on my husband or I don't know boyfriend. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think that he would be very happy with that and proud. And also, I think he would love the fact that uh, his story uh, uh, would be known uh, in the world, around the world. Yeah, so I yeah, think that yeah. I definitely exceeded his expectations. <laughs> Well, that's good I, and i definitely exceeded my mom's expectations as well and oh, well, that, yeah, i exceeded yeah. my own expectations and thanks yeah, so much yeah. to cricket media and to, to you for giving me this incredible opportunity uh, well i loved it john it was it's been so great to obviously get to know you the last few years but to, to do this podcast too, i think people get a sense of uh how uh how infectious your your personality is um and it, it's just such a I know it's such a compelling story. I, I, I'll tell you, I went back last night because I'd listened to the first episode and the first episode talks about the 90s and, and when Yeltsin had kind of suggested your father could succeed him. And I went back because I have uh, the film with the archive of when Yeltsin played tennis with your dad. Um, and, and people should listen to the first episode and you'll hear this uh, story, but of Yeltsin going to visit Nizhny Novgorod where Nemtsov was governor and playing tennis with him and saying, this guy has what it takes to be the next president of Russia. And just watching watching young Boris Nemtsov hit tennis balls with the president of Russia, it's just such a different world, right? I mean, it, it's uh, it's amazing how much can change in, in just about 30 years. And I guess that shows that Things can change for the better in the next thirty and years. By, too, by the way, know? by the way, just just want to pick it, uh, pick on it. Uh, many people uh, have already forgotten about that case. Many people uh, have already forgotten that my father had a chance to become Russia's next president. Yeah, yeah. And that is really hopeful. That yes, it was a theoretical possibility. My father was very, very close to that. And during this tennis match in 1994 in Nizhny Novgorod, uh, a reporter, my mom's uh, friend, Nina Zvereva, approached Boris Yeltsin and asked him, Boris, what do you make of uh, uh, Boris uh, Nikolaevich? What do you make of Boris Nemtsov, our young governor? And uh, he replied, like, I'm very much impressed with his work. And I think that he might be a very good president of Russia. It was in 1994. So my father was uh, younger than me. Yeah. 
That's well. I'm 38. Well, I'm 38 right now. Well, yeah, but you're still young. Um, there's still time. Um, well, to become look, Russia's uh, uh, next president. Yeah, you have to come out. Yeah, that's where this is going. Well, Boris may not have gotten there, but I hope that there, in the future there are presidents of Russia who draw on his example, and that, and that ultimately will be the success of his legacy. But Jana, thanks so much. I know you joined us late from, from Prague. I know you've got a bunch of people there for the Nemtsov Foundation, journalists and activists. Um, so keep up the good work you're doing and uh, keep in touch. Thank you very much, Ben. Have a nice day. Thanks again to Jana for doing the show. Thanks again to um, the Line Hotel. The High Line is cool in New York City. High Line is very cool. I remember the, one of the, the great additions in New York in my lifetime. Yeah, and uh, I remember I said um, I did when I left the White House. I was like, thought it was fun to do cable TV and like you could get you know a free like train ticket and a oh, hotel yeah. room. Yeah, and I remember doing Alex Wagner show on MSNBC when she had that like one PM thing. So yeah. I went up. Shout out to Alex Wagner by the way, getting the Maddow spot, which is yeah. fantastic good for, for everybody. everybody. I think that she'll be really good at that. Um, but yeah, I went up there, stayed at the Standard High Line, psyched. That's a cool hotel, it's a cool Standard spot. Line. Yeah. The only it, problem is the club up top is uh, it bumps pretty hard if you have a TV hit in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you're yeah. not gonna you're gonna yeah, want some yeah. earplugs. They, they don't design that hotel for the TV. Well, it was, it also, there was a controversy for a while of of people just being performatively naked in those windows over the line, like people walking around with their kids. Yeah, that yeah, was not mine. Yeah. Uh, that, well, I, I like, but it's it's it goes on for for a long way too. Like you can you know you can go all the way up the west side there it was um, just a train track before yeah it was just train tracks and they just t- turned into this like public space in these parks and they keep building out from it you know mm-hmm. so like they keep building the kind of additions and you get like, this food it's great people should check it out they're in new york all right everyone go check it out uh that's all we got for this week uh talk to you guys next week see ya Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.com.